Well, good morning. It's good to see you. And if you have your Bibles, and we hope you do, will you please turn in them to 1 John chapter 2. We continue our look at 1 John on Sunday mornings to answer a question that we set out to solidify the answer to for each and every one of us, and that is, can I know for certain that I'm saved? We are growing ever so concerned that here in the United States of America, there are many who believe that they are a Christian, but there is no evidence of that faith within their life. And the first epistle of John is a letter written to allow one to discover if they are truly in Christ or not. In fact, if you turn with me to chapter 5 of 1 John, he writes very clearly in the 13th verse, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know, and there's that word know, underline, circle, highlight, that you have eternal life. John wanted his readers to have certainty concerning their eternal life in Jesus Christ. This is a very important, important question to answer. As we go through the book of 1 John, there are different questions that are posed to us to allow them to analyze our heart and our mind and to help us to discover and to assure ourselves of the fact that either we are in Christ or discover maybe for the first time that even though we had thought so, we are not. In either case, we are brought to a better position because we are then able to make a correction, we are then able to get right with God, and we are then able to know for certain that we have eternal life. As we come to the second chapter, verses 3 through 29, which we'll look at just a few verses this morning of this section, John writes and gives us three assurances. One is a moral assurance, the second is a, so, a social assurance, and third is a theological assurance. This morning we will deal with the moral assurance found in verses 3 through 6. And the title of my message this morning is, It is Better to Obey Than to Sacrifice. The moral assurance that we will look at this morning is based on our obedience to Christ. This assurance is not uh, predicated or justified by what we do, but by the heart in which we do it. We are not, a, we are not uh, for a moment suggesting that an individual is saved by their moral obedience. We are not advocating that at all. Meaning that it is not what you do for God that saves you. We believe that salvation is a gift of God through faith alone. However, though, one who has truly been born again, one who is truly in Christ, will have a revised attitude towards the obedience to Christ. Before I was a Christian, I didn't care less if I obeyed Christ or not. I didn't even come to the forefront of my mind and my everyday life. But being a believer in Jesus Christ now... Being obedient to Christ is constantly on the forefront of my mind. 
and therefore a change has taken place. This phrase comes from an Old Testament passage found in 1 Samuel chapter 15, verse 22. As God instructed Saul, king of, that, uh, of Israel at that time, to go into the land and to wipe out all the inhabitants of the land, God gave uh, Saul very specific, direct instructions that he was simply meant to obey. Saul had a, what he thought was a better idea and went into the land and killed most of what God had asked them to exterminate but kept the choice animals for sacrifices unto God and spared the king, King Agag, from being executed as God had instructed. And when Saul came out with these things, he was met by the prophet Samuel. And Samuel asked Saul very clearly, Saul, is it better to sacrifice or to obey? What do you believe God would have of you? And so he said it as such. He says, As the Lord has great delight in birth offerings and sacrifice, as in obeying the voice of the Lord, behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, and to listen than that of the fat of rams. Saul missed it. He thought he was doing a good thing. He thought that he was pleasing and honoring God by taking these things and then sacrificing them unto God and honoring God through these things. But God says, no. I asked you to do something very directly, very specifically, and you disobeyed. And whatever you thought was better is never better than obeying what I have asked you to do. Saul's heart was not right with God, and that becomes evident as time goes on. This was the catalyst that allowed then God to raise up King David, who, unlike Saul, was a man after God's own heart. When it comes to obedience to God, it is something that we wrestle with because of our fallen natures. Again, when before we were Christians, we had no inkling or inclination, I should say, to obey God and His Word. The only time we might have even considered it is if we wanted to at that moment to earn God's favor for something that we were not able to provide for ourselves. We've all been there, right? God, if you'll only do this for me, I will do this for you. Maybe you interacted with God like that before you were a Christian. But when we became Christians and our righteousness was found in Christ and Christ alone, God now simply wants us to be obedient to Christ and to His Word. It is a matter of the heart. And the moral assurance that we will discover or obtain this morning is based upon our obedience to Christ. How we interact with Him. Do we believe that we know better than God and therefore can circumvent those things that He has instructed and directed us to do? Or do we believe that simply obeying is what God would have us to do? 
not to obtain and maintain our salvation, but as a result of our salvation, we have a changed heart concerning God. This is an important subject for us today. It's an important subject because it gets to the heart of the matter of us being different within the world. Again, we know the world is occupied and and is functioning under the reality of their flesh. They are submitting unknowingly uh, to the ruler of this world, which was Satan himself. But we who are believers, we have a new king, don't we? And we are subject to him. And he can instruct us and he can demand from us obedience, not on the basis of simple obligation, but on the basis of his incredible love. And so as we work through these four verses this morning, let us read them first, and then we'll look at them more closely together. Verse 3 of chapter 2. And by this we know, there's that word again, that we have come to know him. If we keep his commandments... Now, whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, in him truly the love of God is perfected. By this, we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. The first assurance that we are given is the fact that if we see within ourselves that we now have a desire to obey God, that would be an indicator that we have truly been changed by God. That desire to obey God will not be found in a person who is, who is unregenerate. The reason being is is that we are morally depraved before God in our ungenerated state, regenerated state. We have no desire for the things of God in that state. The depravity overwhelms us. Our sin blinds us. But if we now discover that we have the desire to obey God, it shows and demonstrates that the Spirit of God has worked within us. Now that I have this inner desire to be obedient to God, I then can know that I know Him. And he uses these words such as no, to describe that what he is looking for is a relationship with you. It is the same word that is used in the Old Testament to describe the intimacy between husband and wife. As the Old Testament you know, says very articulately and uh, eloquently, I should say, uh, Abraham knew his wife, Sarah, and they had a child. Very elegant. Uh, And that is the relationship aspect that God wants us to know. Verse 3, and by this we know that we have come to know Him. We can know that we have a relationship with Him if we keep His commandments. And likewise, verse 4, whoever says, I know Him, says stating that I have a relationship with God, but does not keep His commandments, is a what? 
liar. And again, who did we specify last week as being lied to? Not to God. God sees everything as it truly is. Not to those around us. We might fool them for a short period of time, but often they can see us more truly than we can see ourselves. We are lying to ourselves. If we say that we know God and we do not keep His commandments, we're lying to ourselves. And the truth of God is not in Him. It is not in us. If we have no desire to keep the commandments of God, then we have no relationship with God. We lie to ourselves. And the truth is not in us. This is exactly what Jesus was referring to in the Sermon on the Mount when He said this in verses 7, 21 to 23 of Matthew's Gospel. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Now on that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name, cast out demons in your name, and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never, what? knew you. I never had that relationship. So if you are unwilling to keep the commandments of God, you're lying to yourself. The truth is not in you and you do not know him. And for some, the first inkling of, or the first discovery of this reality will be that there before Christ in heaven. Then it's too late. Serious? Yeah, it is serious. It's very serious. I never knew you. I did not have that relationship with you. As one wrote, he says, obedience is not the means, but a fruit, evidence, or result of regeneration. It's not the means, but it is an evidence of this regeneration that has taken place to allow us to be born again. Now, if you notice with me, there is a progression in John's writing that is very similar to the psalmist writing in Psalm 1. He first asks the question in verse 3 to keep his commandments, that is to obey the teaching of the Lord Jesus found in the New Testament. But then in verse 5, he then says, he, he tests us our obedience by keeping his word. And this means not to just be obedient to what is written, but to have an inward desire to do what we know would please God. And number three, he says to walk as he walked in a full expression of God's standard for his people. It means to live as Jesus lives. Notice that progression in these verses. John starts here and works his way down in a methodical fashion to get to the heart of the issue. This is identical to what David did in Psalm 1, verses 1 through 2. Notice this progression. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. Notice the progression walks, stands, and sits. And each development, each 
step of that progression gets worse. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on the law he meditates day and night. That same progression is found here in our text this morning. John wants us to know and to discover that if our moral obedience is in parallel with our understanding of who God is. Again, in verse 4, he says, Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. Let me clarify that what he is saying is the individual who has no desire to be obedient to Christ. He is not referring to a Christian who is struggling with a sin. He is not referring to that individual. He is referring to the one who is in consistent disobedience and denies the reality of sin and is repulsed by his fellowship with other believers. As John will make that argument as we flow further on into the chapter. So if you're here now and you read this and you say, oh my goodness, I'm very concerned, I'm very uh, overwhelmed now by the reality because of my struggles with sin, does that mean that I am not with God? No, that doesn't mean that. We all struggle with something. When we became born again, we unfortunately became a dual personality, the flesh wrestling against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh. And there are just certain things that we as individuals are more vulnerable to than maybe others. For some of you, it may be one thing, and for the person sitting next to you, it may be something else. And they can be very trying circumstances, these sins that seem to haunt us and we just can't seem to escape. And you may be wrestling with sin, and you want to get rid of it, and you just don't know how to do it. You've, you've tried just to simply resist the temptation. You've tried to overcome it in some way or another. And you've just fallen flat in your endeavors to do so. May I make a suggestion? Instead of concentrating on the sin in which you wrestle with and struggle with, may I suggest that you uh, turn from that and turn your attention to the Spirit. And begin to feed the Spirit. Because if we walk in the Spirit, we will not fulfill the lusts of the flesh. So how do you feed the Spirit? Prayer. The Word of God. Fellowship with your brothers and sisters in Christ. Being active in serving Christ in some fashion within your local body, the church. These are ways in which you can feed the Spirit to overcome those uh, overwhelming desires of the flesh that seem to haunt you day in and day out. I remember being told that personally, and one of the largest struggles that I had as a new believer in Jesus Christ was my temper. My temper was something awful. I had it before and after. It just didn't seem to go away. It was so bad that at times... I misrepresented the Lord at times when I should have been more graceful. I remember a time where, um, <laughs> well, I'm, I'm going to confess sin today. Uh, I was at O'Hare Field picking up a friend, and I was with some brothers and some sisters, and we were all waiting for our friend to arrive. And these 
uh, individuals from a cult came up to us and started telling us about their cult and so on and so forth. And as they were witnessing to us, they were handing us our materi- the, uh, their material. And I said to them, I said, listen, we're not interested. We're followers of Jesus Christ and, and uh, we have no need for what you are uh, sharing with us. And the individual got in my face, stood three inches away from me and just started cursing me and telling me how sinful I was before the Lord. And I said, I understand how sinful I am before the Lord. That's what took me to Jesus Christ. But if we need to convince you of how sinful you are, maybe we need to step outside. (laughs) I just want to let everyone know this is what not to do in an evangelistic endeavor. And the reason I tell you that story is because I, took, I had the literature in my hand, I threw it at the guy's feet, and I said, hey, we can take this outside, and there's this thing called the laying on of hands. And uh, the reason I bring it up is because of this. Two of my friends saw that. And do you know what they started to do for me? They started to pray for me. One of my friends started fasting and praying for me because he saw that this temper of mine was just one day going to really rear its head at the wrong time and so on and so forth. And do you know what happened over time? That my temper started dissipating. I didn't really have a sense of humor and then all of a sudden it seemed like God replaced the temper with a sense of humor. And I didn't even realize it was happening. But I focused on His Word, I focused on prayer, and my friends in our fellowship prayed for me that God would alleviate that temper and he did so whatever you're struggling with today whatever it is maybe instead of dealing with that head-on and trying to battle that particular area of your flesh usually in the flesh why don't you turn your attention to the spirit and start to feed it and allow the spirit to overcome those areas of the flesh So we're not talking about one who struggles in sin. We're talking about one who doesn't regard sin as sin at all. As one wrote John Wolvert, he said, In such a person, the truth is not a dynamic, controlling influence. He is seriously out of touch with his spiritual reality. So number one, do we have a desire to obey Christ? If we do, that would be an indicator that we have truly been saved by Christ. But look at verse 5 with me, if you will. But whoever keeps his word, now it's more than just being attentive to the uh, obedience of the written word, but now it's more of a heart issue. In him, truly, the love of God is perfected. And by this, we may know that we are in him. There's that assurance again. If we keep his word, the love of God is perfected in us. It is the love of God that is doing a work in you to change you from who you once were to who you should be in Christ. Because God loves you too much the way, uh, to leave you the way he found you. He wants you to bring you back into the image of him, your original image before the fall in the garden there in Eden. So, 
if you keep his word. It is your heart's desire to keep his word. Then the love of God has been perfected in you. Jesus said in John 14, 15, If you love me, you will keep my commandments. Now the question then should be, what are these commandments in which God has asked us to keep? Are they the Ten Commandments? That would probably be your first reaction. But in actuality, Jesus told us what these commandments were that he wants us and desires us to keep. And if we say we love him, we will do so. We will keep these commandments. These are the words of our Lord and when he says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. When he was asked in Luke 10, 25 through 28, and behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test saying, teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And he said to him, what is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And he, that is Jesus, said to him, you have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. Those are the commandments, two of them. Remember Jesus said that on the basis of these two commandments, all the law of God was fulfilled. To love the Lord your God with all your love, I'm sorry, with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all of your mind and to love your neighbor as yourself. This is the commandments that he's asking us to keep. The question then becomes, if we were being analytical about this process, what type of love is he talking about? Let us be honest. Today, love has been cheapened to a mere hallmark card, hasn't it? We don't really understand the depths of true love in this nation any longer. We have divorced that word from any type of sacrifice or commitment that that word once gardenered. And so as we look at the word love today, we must be very cautious not to assume that this fluffy feeling that everybody throws around loosely is the type of love that God is speaking of here in his word. When this love needed to be defined for people, Paul did so in 1 Corinthians 13. He did so because in the church of Corinth, there were those who prided themselves on the spiritual gifts that were being manifested within the church. The gift of tongues, the gift of prophecy, the gift of discernment, etc., And they believe that simply on the basis of these manifested gifts, these manifested gifts, they had reached maturity in Christ. But notice what Paul says in the 13th chapter of 1 Corinthians. He says very clearly that love is the indication of maturity. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understanding all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith as to remove mountains, but not love, I am nothing. If I give away all that I have and deliver it up, 
my body to be burned, martyrism. But have not love, I gain nothing. And then he defines this love. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, that is the day that we are with our Lord in heaven for eternity, the partial will pass away. There will be no need for it. He says, when I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man and I gave up childish ways, for now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, and then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. So now faith, hope, and love abide in these three. But the greatest, of these is love. Verses 4 through 8 is this definition of this love. It is a word agape that Jesus did not necessarily coin himself, but he kind of resurrected, if I may say. Agape was a word that was in the Greek language for love that was rarely ever used because it denoted such sacrifice, such commitment, such unconditional um, reason for, meaning people didn't have to have a reason to love one another in this agape love. Jesus brought this word back to the attention of everyone. It is this love that he speaks of when he talks about, if you love me, if you agape me, and he then goes on to say, if you love the Lord your God, if you agape him, if you love your neighbor as yourself, if you agape them, this is the word in which he's using. Paul now is giving de- definition. He's fleshing it out, as it were, to help you understand what this word means. And many scholars, and I agree with them, state that this word, love, is not a definition that you would find in the dictionary, but more a description. It's a description because it describes for us the person of Jesus Christ. He is saying from the totality of the life of Christ, this is the way he saw Christ love, and now he's saying you must love in that same fashion. Not only others, but God. So what am I saying? We, as believers in Jesus Christ, must love God unconditionally. We must love Him regardless of how things play out in our lives, right? We are not putting conditions upon our love for God. If we do so, then we are, are we truly loving Him in the manner in which He has asked us to? Now that I say this, you may say, well, what warrants me loving God in such a way? Well, I'll tell you why. It's very simple. 1 John four nineteen, We love because He first loved us. That's why. Well, how did He love me? 
How did he love us? John 3.16 For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. The love that God demonstrated for you and for I was a love that was demonstrated in sacrifice, commitment, and selflessness. Humility, mercy, and grace. I could have never warranted in and of myself or I could have never provoked God in doing what God has done on my behalf. He chose to love me even though I was rebelling against Him. Why? Because Christ died for us while we were yet sinners. I couldn't have done anything to warrant such an action. But the love of God was demonstrated towards me in such a sacrificial way. This is the type of love that God wants us to love Him with. An unconditional, sacrificial love. This is the type of love that God wants us to love one another with. A sacrificial, unconditional love. The love of this world is temporary. It is fading. It is fleeting. It is simply based on feelings. This is not a love that is simply discovered at one moment and lost at the next. This is a love that you choose to love, period. I love Dina because I have chosen to love my wife unconditionally. It's not simply based on feelings. It's not simply based on the fact that she's so good looking. It is based on the fact that I have dedicated and committed my entire heart to her. The same manner that God did towards us and showed us by allowing his son to go to the cross. I was once told that every time I see a picture of Christ on the cross, I should just scream out these three words, I love you. And it's demonstrated at that moment. The love of God is perfected in us. It comes full circle when we allow ourselves to love one another and God unconditionally. John went on to say in John 14, 23 and 24, I'll let you read the whole passage for yourself. And Jesus answered him, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him. And we will come to him and make our home with him. That's a very eloquent phrase of saying, having a relationship with. Whoever does not love me does not keep my words. And the word that you hear is not of mine, but the Father who has sent me. From the very mouth of Christ, if we love him, we will keep his commandments. But not only will our obedience lead to the perfection of love within us, number three in verse six, obedience leads to Christ-likeness. Verse six of 1 John chapter two. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. The word abide means to continue in that relationship. It means to go hand in hand. Uh, it, would be, uh, it would be adequate to say that if you were watching, walking, seeing two people walking together, 
They may just be friends, but you know, but if you see them walking arm in arm or holding hands, you understand that those two have a deeper relationship. That's what he is saying here. If you abide in him, then you ought to walk. It is the natural consequence, it's the natural conclusion that if you're truly in relationship with God, then you will walk in the same way in which he walked. It means to live or to conduct one's life. As one wrote, he says, Obedience in turn results in imitating Jesus. One professing that he abides in a relationship with him must conduct himself as he walked. The genuineness of one's relationship with an invisible God is seen in a person's visible behavior. Now, when you look at the totality of Christ's life depicted for us in all four Gospels, you can say, wow, that is something else to try to simply imitate that. Now remember, Paul said, imitate me as I imitate Christ. This was already something that they were thinking in the first century church. That Christ was the standard. Christ was the example. It was him in whom we were supposed to imitate the greatest form of flattery. So how do I boil it all down for you? This word imitate means more than just simply mock or to mirror one's actions. It's a heartfelt imitation. And where does that imitation begin? That was the question I asked myself to help you understand where you begin with this imitation. And actually, I believe we are given the results of that we are, giving in, we are given insight to where this all began in the Garden of Gethsemane the night before Jesus was crucified. He prayed something that shows to me and indicates to me, I believe, where this imitation all begins. It begins in this, these simple words. Not my will be done, but your will be done. This is where the imitation begins. This imitation of Christ begins when we say, not my will, Lord, but your will be done through me. And whatever that will is. Now remember what Jesus said in Matthew 7, 21 through 23. He says, not all who say to me, Lord, Lord, will enter into the kingdom of God, into the kingdom of God but those who do the will of my Father. Interesting. Now, my, th- my thinking is, is that that's where it all begins for us. Our imitation of Christ, our Christ-likeness will begin with our willingness to lay down our will and adopt the will of God for our lives. Could this possibly be what Paul had in mind in Romans 12, 1 and 2, when he said, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice? Could that be summed up as not my will, but your will be done? Where did that prayer lead Christ? To the cross. If we are to deny ourselves and to take up our cross and follow Him, does it not begin with, not my will be done, but your will be done, Lord. 
something to truly wrestle with. This, is, this has huge implications upon our lives. Paul goes on to say, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. He is saying that this is the only true reaction to all that God has done for us on our behalf. This is our only true response to the reality of all that Christ has done for us on our behalf. We simply, all we can do is lay before him a living sacrifice and say, not my will be done, but your will be done. As then he goes on to say, bringing in the Christ-likeness, do not be conformed to this world, but transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by, the te- by testing you may discern what is the will of God, that's interesting, and what is good and acceptable and perfect. As David Gusick wrote, he said, to walk just as he walked. We aren't called to imitate the way Jesus walked on water. But his everyday, everyday walk with God the Father, the spiritual power evident in the life of Jesus flowed from a faithful, regular, disciplined life of fellowship and obedience to the Father. Not my will, but your will be done. Our moral assurance looking at our attitude towards obedience. Number one, do you desire to be obedient to God today? Number two, has that obedience had its work in you that led to perfect love of God? To allow that love of God that started with the cross to have its perfect effect on your life, to bring you about, to now allow you to reflect Christ to others as obedience has now led us to Christ-likeness. That's where it all starts. Our moral assurance comes from our understanding of our relationship with our obedience to God. Do we desire that? Are we allowing that obedience to bring about the perfected love of God within us? And are we allowing that obedience to bring about the full Christ-likeness that God desires us to reflect? Reflect. 